Welcome to Bull by the Horns with Giles Vickers-Jones. Hello, I'm Giles Vickers-Jones and welcome to Bull by the Horns sponsored by Shy Aviation. Each week, I'll be sitting down with a hugely successful individual who has taken massive risks to reap incredible rewards. I'll be asking them how success has affected their careers and what inspires them to keep on taking risks. If you like what you hear, then please make sure you subscribe to the podcast. It's 100% free, and of course, you never miss an episode. This week, I sat down with legendary businessman and co-founder of travel giant Tag and director of The Wombles, no less, Mr. Maurice Veronique. So... I've been trying to get a chat with you for a while now to come on our podcast. And one of the reasons we haven't been able to get together is you've gone around the world in about six months now, um, mostly due to COVID, secondly due to your pursuit of the perfect tan. Um, where are you in the world? What's going on? Well, I'm currently in West Hollywood in Los Angeles. Uh, been here for around about a month now. Uh, before that, I was in Mexico. I was down in Puerto Vallarta. I decided to um, use uh, COVID as an excuse to get out of town. Uh, for I actually came down to Mexico at the just after Christmas. It was around the 27th of December. Came down with my family to enjoy uh, the new year. And then it was a big birthday celebration of mine uh, in the first week of January. So I decided to stay on and have a bit of a party. And, uh, and then I thought, you know what? Um, England's in lockdown. It's cold. It's January. And why would I want to go back? So I managed <laughs> to stay in Mexico for three months. Um, I'm now here for a month and now contemplating my return to England post uh, lockdown and hopefully with some good weather. So what people, well, I, firstly, I think we're all envious. Um, secondly, the good weather back in the UK, I'm hopeful too. I am hopeful. Um, and thirdly, just be brilliant to have you back because I've got to say, I've known, uh, we've known each other, Maurice, now for, I'd say, year and a half, two years. Um, well, actually, I, think, I think it's three years this summer. I think we met in um, 2018 in the summer. 2018. Well, do you know what? It feels like it's been a lot longer. You're a very dear friend. I've always, since the time I met you, I guess, without being too sycophantic, you know, you're, you're a bit of a mentor, but also you're a really good friend. And one of the reasons we're friends is I think I'm treading a path perhaps you've already trodden, um, having been in travel and an entrepreneur. Uh, and secondly, we both enjoy a drink. Um, I don't want to beat around the bush. Um, so yours, I, think, I, think, I think the thing is, Giles, what we do share is a fun uh, and a zest for life. And I right. think, you know, whatever you do in life, wherever you are, whoever you're with, you know, it's about sur surrounding yourself with people that you get a positive vibe from. And you're one of those people, you know, you're very generous and you're very open and, you know, a lot of fun. And that's how I want to be you know, around people like that. So it was obvious that we would have a connection, I think. Do you know what? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the biggest things I look for in people is exactly that, good energy, right? Because you can sap a room. Generosity, openness, I love that. It's great. Well, I really appreciate that. Um, so let's, this show's all about risk. It's called Ball by the Horns, Marie. So the idea of the show is we share with listeners the story of our guests, um, the journey they've taken, um, the obstacles have overcome and the risks they've taken to become successful. So let's start back to, I guess, your biggest success, because you've got investments in various things, but your biggest success would be the appointment group. For those that don't know at home, the appointment group, well, you probably do know, is, I'd say, probably the foremost expert in touring music artists around the world from their travel on the aircraft and jets through to accommodation and transfers, um, logistics of everything. And I think you've been going 40 years. Is that correct? No, you're, you're, you're aging me now. I'm only 30 years. 
was it 1998 you set your business up, right? So that's 30 no, years. No, no, no. I set it up in 1988. But I think you probably got to go back 10 years before oh, that to really understand the, you know, how I got to sort of start up my own business. And I think, you yeah. know, as a, as a kid, um, I had a very very sort of um, plain and normal sort of upbringing went to a comprehensive school um, working class family didn't have a lot of wealth you know but we were we were comfortable um, and I think when I left school I left school with I don't know like two O levels or something and I think one of them was in car maintenance so um, <laughs> and you didn't have a car and I didn't even have a car at the age of sixteen. No. So, uh, but the other one was in uh, in in mathematics, and I don't know why I always had this uh, propensity to be quite good at maths. Yeah. So it was very funny that I I always um, sort of elevated to wanting to be an accountant, which um, was very strange back then. Not many people wanted to be an accountant back in the sort of mid seventies, and I'll never forget um, my parents had a, a hairdressing. Uh, business, quite a successful hairdressing business. About they had about seven or eight uh, hairdressers all around London, and we used to go and visit uh, the accountant who looked after all the accounts for the hairdressers. And he had this amazing house in Wembley. And I'm going back; I was probably about ten or eleven. And I never forget going to this house in Wembley. And he was there with his wife and a couple of kids. And he, at the time, he had the latest Volvo in the drive, which was the car to have. And he had this amazing house and in his bedroom, I'll never forget it. He had this bank of wardrobes and you walk through the wardrobes into his ensuite um, bathroom. And I was thinking, this is so cool. Yeah. I remember over Sunday lunch saying to him, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm an accountant. And I said, well, what's that? And he tried <laughs> to explain to me what an accountant was. Mm -hmm. So from that sort of young age, I always had this desire to be an accountant because I wanted the... The, the luxuries and, and, the, and the, the wealth that went with it. So yeah. it was very strange. My, my stepdad used to drive. Um, he was probably a, 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 a former day Uber driver, like a private driver for the CFO of McCann Ericsson. Yeah, and big advertising agency, probably globally the biggest, right, at that time? Yeah, massive. But this is going back to probably, where are we now? I was probably about 16. So probably, yeah, like late, eight, uh, late 70s. Yeah, and my uh, stepdad said to him one day on a visit uh, on a on a journey. He said, "Look, you know, my son wants to get into accountancy. Would you interview him?" So he set up this interview. So me as a sort of 17, 18 year old kid, absolutely shitting myself, gets on yeah. the train, goes up to London, goes to these massive offices, goes into these beautiful offices, meets his. PA says, wait here. And I go in and, he, and you sit down and he says, okay, so what do you want to be? I said, I want to be an accountant. And he said, which one? And I was like, what? Well, you mean there's more than one? Yeah. <laughs> and it was the most embarrassing interview I've ever had in my life. It lasted about 10 minutes. He was lovely. Oh, no. And what he said to me... He but said, interviews oh, are the worst, aren't they, at times? Yeah, but this something I was so ill-prepared for. I had no yeah. idea what I was letting myself in for. And in, in the nicest possible way, he basically said, look, why don't you go away, do some research, look into what sort of accountancy you want to do. And if you want to come back, come back and we'll have a chat about it. Well, I went away and I looked into all the, you know, chartered accountants, certified accountants, management accountants, everything. And I never went back, but it really was the first big lesson I had in life that never go into anything unless you're absolutely prepared for it. So I then went and joined a firm of accountants. I actually went to college, um, did, you know, but, and I, I, it, was, it was very weird as a, as a sort of 17 year old lad, I had, this, I had this sort of mission. And I sort of said to myself when I was 17, I said, I've got 10 years, I wanna do a 10 years apprenticeship to learn everything I need to learn about accountancy. So that it's yeah. going to prepare me because I want to run my own business. I always said I always wanted to run my own business. I never knew what it was, though. So I went and worked for a firm of... Charles. What age were you saying that? I, was say, I said that at 17. I literally said at 17. I got my first job. It's really weird how things work out. I got yeah. my first job on the 1st of September, 1978, as a 17-year-old lad. Worked for a firm of chartered accountants in Windsor. 
which yeah. was the best, best grounding I could have had because it was all about incomplete records, VAT returns, pay as you earn, management accounts, spreadsheets, trial balances, balance sheets, P&L. And then um, I went and worked for a Lex Service Group, which was a very, very large multinational company, sort of looking after motor re retailers, dealing with Jaguars and Rolls Royce. And, and how old were you at this point? How, how long was each post you've done? Yeah, so I was four years in the firm of a chartered accountant. So four I was years, seven, wow. 17 to 21. I then did three years with Lex. Uh, and then I wanted to learn about uh, business entrepreneurship. And that's when I joined a company in London called Fanfare, Fanfare Records. And um, that was a, a, a startup situation with some entrepreneurs who really sort of like just went hell for leather. And to coin a phrase, you know, they really did take the bull by the horns and really sort of <laughs> said, we're going we're gonna to do this. And they just got on with it. And I learned so much. Were they successful, by the way? Do they do yeah. well? I mean, it was, it was an interesting time. I mean, one of the main guys, um, I won't mention names, um, but he was a very successful chartered accountant, had a very big reputation. And the other one was an entrepreneur who'd done various stuffs in the entertainment industry. And they set up a business um, to basically uh, take over a fully listed uh, PLC. So we did a reverse takeover and I was yeah. involved in the finances and it was incredible. Oh my gosh, so I'm just working out. You would have been at this point... 25 to 28 would that be right uh 25 to 27 yeah yeah that is a for those at home and don't know this that is huge i mean that's a that's a big job for someone not necessarily experienced but that age right that's huge yeah no it was and i and i think the the experience that i got i mean it was full on i mean it was seven days a week it was 15 hours a day really yeah, and we, we worked we worked it really, really hard. And, and you know what? We achieved our objectives. They did this reverse takeover. Unfortunately, there were some underlying um, accounts issues, which were nothing to do with me, I hasten to add, um, <laughs> which um, unfortunately saw the demise of it very, very quickly. Oh, no. Yeah. So it was it was amazing because literally after 10 years, I'd sort of done my grounding through a firm of chartered accountants. I'd worked for one of the biggest multinationals in, in the world. And then yeah. I worked with this sort of young entrepreneurial startup, which had gone from zero to a fully quoted PLC in like three years. Wow. Um, and I are thought, you, are you, are you the, would you have been the CFO or the FD? At that time, no, no, no. I was the assistant to the CFO. That's still a big job. Well, I was, you know, I know it sounds like um, a story you hear, but I was doing all the work and he was taking all the credit. But that's that's part of part and parcel of of growing up and, and learning <laughs> your trade. Yeah. So it literally got to this, the point where I recognized that things weren't going to go according to plan and there could be some issues here. So I handed my notice in. And at that time, a very good friend of mine um, was doing very well um, in, a, in the travel business, a guy called John Genquito, who was yep. working for Finifold Travel, who was the sort of premier uh, entertainment travel agency. Was this his business or was he working for someone else? Well, no, it was really weird because we both found that we were in exactly the same situation. We were both <laughs> working our nuts off, um, yeah. getting paid reasonably well, you know, yeah. getting a little bonus and got a company car and you know we were we were comfortable both at the age of sort of 27 but mm. we both I believe felt that we could and should be doing more so I rang him up one day and sort of said and you know I, I'd got to that stage in my life where I really wanted to do my own thing I really wanted to run my own business and I didn't know what it was and I looked at all sorts of different weird and wonderful ideas and none of which really um, resonated with me and I started a conversation with John, who I'd known for 10 years. We met at college. And I said, how's it going? And he said, oh, you know, I'm working, you know, all these crazy hours and, you know, things are going really well. But I'm not, I haven't got the sort of recognition reward that I want. So yeah. I said, well, I'm in a very similar situation. Why don't we do something together? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, let's set up a, you know, travel. I'm an accountant. I know how to run a business and set a business up. You've got the specialist skills of how a business, you know, how the travel business is run. 
why don't we um, set up a business and see where we go? So that's literally what happened. And very weirdly, on the 1st of September, 1988, literally to the day, 10 years to the day, we, um, we bought and started trading as, as was travel by appointment. Crikey me. That's amazing. And then, so serendipity plus the motivation to want to run your own business. Can I ask, when you started, because this is, I, I think the biggest thing that people can't get their heads around is that you can work for yourself. You can create a business. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that I've observed, and certainly I haven't had the luxury of having money when I'm setting up a business, is that people think it needs to be perfect to begin with. At which point did you have the startup of the business and then it to become a success, right? So when I mean that, I mean starting to book things, starting to get money through the door. What was that timeline like? Well, we, you know, I mean, there was a lot of business out there, especially, I mean, we were very fortunate. We, we did our due diligence. We looked at yeah. the market, did our business plans. Um, we went, you know, did the cash flows, the profit forecast. We went to the really. Bank. We got a £40,000 overdraft facility uh, oh, from, wow. from Lloyds Bank. And these are a couple of, you know, a couple of 27-year-olds with, you know, a dream. That's it. Literally a dream. Nothing more. Um, but this bank manager really sort of saw something in us. And we started the business with um, an implant of a company called Bearing Securities, which was Gosh, a big, I know that name. Yeah, it was a big securities company in uh, in the city at the time. Right. They they were a client of where John used to work, and they weren't happy with the service they were receiving. So we went to them and said, look, we're setting up our own business. Um, would you come on board? And again, unbelievably, they looked at the two of us and said, yeah, okay, we, we believe in you. Now, I don't know what it is, you know, right place, right time, right attitude, but unless you put yourself in that situation, you're never, ever going to know. And they were true to their word. They gave us a million pound account, a, a million pound a year account on day one. Which so really what would that look? So why would you want a million quid? What would that do? A million pounds worth of turnover. Turnover? Yeah. So you so could we, essentially use this for your cash flows. They gave you a roll, rolling credit facility. No, no, no. This is a client. This is us doing travel for them. Okay, so you became the okay. We became their travel agent. We put so in and how quickly email. after you op- after you opened up, formed the company to that happening? How long was that? A month. I mean, that is remarkable. You guys must have had some serious gravitas. Were you good in meetings? I mean, how yeah. would you? Pres- you just said we- earlier, which I love, by the way. Always go in prepared. Do you remember how? you prepared to get that client? Yeah, and again, going back to that ill-fated interview, um, again, I never wanted to put myself in that situation again. So we prepped and we prepared reports and we got all the analysis of their revenues and we put together a really good business case of how we could look after them better than they could, they're, they're being looked after currently. And, you know, we, we were going in to meet the administration manager. It was a lovely woman called Roma Holmes. Still remember her to this day. And she said, look, I'd love to do it, but it's not my decision. It's the CFO's decision, a guy called Ian Martin. And, I, and, we, and cheekily, we said, well, can we see him? <laughs> and she's going, well, he's the CFO. He's, he's very busy. And we said, well, would you mind seeing him? He's available. We just want to say hello. So he literally came into the meeting and we introduced ourselves. And she said, oh, these are a couple of guys who want to take over our travel. And we had like about a 15 minute chat with him. And that's what sealed the deal. So again, being cheeky, being ballsy is part of it. And it paid off in that situation. So we had that as an underlying foundation for starting the yeah. business. And then we went in and we started, and I'll never forget the first month we did business, we took, we, we took a hit of a bad debt of 20,000 pounds, which is a bad debt. That's straight off the bottom line. I mean, forget about a million pounds worth of turnover. This is a 20 pound, uh, 20, 20,000 pound hit on the bottom line. Of your, out of your profits, that's your income, right? So Absolutely. Yeah. And this is a startup. I mean, this is our first. What, what? I had a very similar thing, by the way. And what was the reason for that? Well, it was a band called, uh, yeah, I can say it. it was a band called Five Star, who were big, big pop. Rain, 
mate, rain or shine, that band. Yes. Rain or shine. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it was them, and they were huge at the time. This is 88, so they were huge. Yeah. And one of John's um, previous colleagues <clears throat> at uh, the company where he worked <clears throat> basically came to us and said, oh, I've got this booking <clears throat> for Five Star. They want to <clears throat> they want to travel around the world, and, um, you know, we need sort of £20,000 worth of tickets. And we said, and John knew the guy, and we knew the band, and we said, okay, we'll do it. So we did it, and, of course, he shafted us. So again, big lesson learned. Never trust people. <clears throat> Always do your due diligence and don't take risks. Um, but, but you did. You gave essentially them credit, right? This is one of the biggest things in business: is credit. A lot of big people require it, and when you're a smaller company, you almost it almost becomes their bargaining chip if you want the business, right? So, so how do you mitigate that? It's also the one thing that can take you down. It's, it's yes, the it can. Biggest, it's the biggest thing that will take you down. A big bad debt is literally going to wipe you out. If you can't pay your creditors. I had so a friend of mine, you know him, Gary Shepherd. Yeah, yeah. I think we go. Um, so Gary's um, he had a big company to buy loads of big tower blocks. Anyway, successful entrepreneur, successful businessman. He was, we were talking once about a client wanting credit for a private jet. And he said, why would you give them credit, Charles? And I said, well, they're a big company. He goes, well, if they don't pay you, Charles, you've still got to pay. You, you don't get it for free, so why do you let them? He, went, I was, he goes, going forward, Charles, just do me this. Get the money. Don't do credit. So that was a lesson for me because I got burnt in our first six months of trading, would you believe? We, we did a trip with someone and the aircraft didn't turn up. The client sat there waiting on the runway and we'd used a rogue operator and uh, we then had to pay for new aircraft. Lesson learned. Um, so what have you now, after that first year and that 20 grand hit, did it, did it ever deter your determination to keep growing? How did you adjust? What did you do? <clears throat> well, again, I think you got to you got to be prepared when you go into business for the knocks. You know, it's not all going to be a you know roses. It's not all going to be up. It's not all going to be great. And I think that's really where you test your character and your metal, because it's all great when things are going well, but when things go bad, that's when you really have to step up and understand and work things out. So you know, taking a twenty grand hit in the first month was was hard, and we had to then re-strategize to come up with how we could fund it and how we could push out our creditors. So, you know, and everyone was very supportive of us, thankfully, you know, we were, you know, we were honest and we had a lot of integrity and our suppliers, you know, working with airlines, you don't really get the opportunity to have extended credit. It's all controlled. You have to make payments on a certain date. Hotels, on the other hand, you know, a bit more flexibility, um, cars, etc. as well. So you have to sort of massage it where you can so to get through it. And we did. And we were fortunate enough that, you know, we survived that. And the business literally just took off because, because we were young, um, fresh, hungry, and we were specializing in this sort of entertainment world. It was incredible. I mean, the floodgates opened and we literally... I think we did like five million pounds in our first 12 months of trading, which was ridiculous. I mean, it really was unheard of. And I think, you know, we even made profit in our first year, even with a bad debt. So, um, yeah. again, there was the signs were there that this is going to be something that, you know, if we nurture it correctly and if we control it, it will be a very successful business. And I think from there on in, um, we grew and grew and grew. Every year, I mean, we would, you know, I think we were up to sort of 30, 40 million pounds of revenue by about three years when we did business. Wow. I mean, the business plan we put together for the banks, I mean, I think we'd achieved it in the first sort of three months of, the, of a 12-month budget. And, you know, it was exciting times. And, you know, how that differs today to what it was back in the late 80s, I think it's a very different world now, you know. I think there's so much more... Um, controls through procurement, you know, we wouldn't have got any of the business that we got there now because there's so much regulation, there's so many controls, it's so much harder to, 
get people to make a decision. You know, people don't want to, there's no risk and reward anymore. You know, everything has to be very much done by the book. Um, I'm not saying that it was the Wild West back then, but it was a, a much better market to, to grow a new business than what it is today. But that, but that said, there will be someone who's going to come and disrupt what's going on right now. Um, there will be someone like yourselves who found a niche, essentially, more than just a niche, clearly. You found a, a way to grow a business. And the fundamentals for growing any business is having a plan, your best laid plan, and adapting, right? And pivoting where you needed to. So this shows about risk and reward. What looking back over the last 30 years of this business, and we'll come to how you know you, you exited the company and your relationship with your partner and you know what's going on in your life now. What has been let's say a defining moment. Can you remember a moment when you you knew? And I had this chat just earlier with my business partner where you feel like, wow, it's it's working, right? You it's falling into place. I mean, don't get me wrong, you still have problems, but do you remember what happened or when you felt like, yeah, we got it under control? Or did it never happen? Uh, I think the the reality is is that when you're sort of on the coal face and you're in there every single day, you're just grinding it out yeah and what is the most difficult thing to do is to lift your head up out of the power pit and try and get some clarity on how to look forward and how to put a strategic business plan together that's going to be something everyone can work towards so it wasn't just myself and my business partner and you know we started with myself my business partner and three staff you know we grew to 20 30 40 50 staff very very quickly um, and I mean, I, there were some pivotal moments. I mean, you know, back in the sort of 90s, um, you know, we were, we were doing tours for everyone, you know, from Michael Jackson and, and Janet Jackson and Bruce Springsteen. And I mean, all these, you know, incredible bands. And one of the Dana, one of the biggest pitfalls that a business can have is, is actually not under trading, but over trading. It's so much easier to control a business when you're under trading because you can control your overheads and your staff and your resource accordingly. When you're over trading, you're always trying to catch up. So we had this incredible growth throughout the early 90s. And it really got to the point about 95, 96, where we were over trading. We, we couldn't keep up. We couldn't employ staff quick enough, get them trained up to service the clients. And at the same time, I couldn't find accounts staff and all the resources for back office to process the business. And probably in 95, 96, we nearly lost the business. I mean, it really did. Well, because you just, you weren't on top of everything. We just couldn't, we just did not have the resource to process the business. So how would you have lost it though? You still had the income coming in or did you have too many bodies you were paying? No, so what was happening back then is, and, and again, it, it was a lesson learned that we, we used to do a thing called hotel billbacks, which is when a band went on tour, we would book it with the hotel, the band would go and stay, and then the hotel would send us the bill, and then we would reconcile it and then send the invoice to the client. The okay. client would then have 30 days to pay us, we would then pay the hotel. The problem was, is that this stack of invoices coming back from these hotels, I mean, literally, it was it was overwhelming. There were so many invoices. We could not process these invoices. There was queries on them. We were sending them to the client. The client was saying, I didn't have this. This is wrong. This wasn't what we had. So it was literally a shit show. And it really nearly caused us, because we weren't charging the client, the client wasn't paying us. The hotels were saying, well, where's our money? We're saying, well, we haven't actually charged the client yet because there's some queries on the invoice. And it really did get to a really, really big hole. Wait a minute. You were looking after big bands like Michael Jackson or artists like Michael Jackson. And did you not get money up front? Not back in those days, no. This was the, this was the crazy thing about... Even them. after your first year having lost that 20K? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you've done your due diligence, right? You've probably seen the letter of credit or the line of credit, and you've seen that they're solvent, but you're still having to bankroll it. Well, you're kind of in between, aren't you? You're not really bankrolling, but you are in the middle and you are exposed. 
Did that not change through the years? Yeah, we put together payment plans. So basically when a, when a client came, and again, it comes back to the same thing that ha happens today. You know, client would come in, we'd book the tour, we'd say, right, it's quarter of a million pounds worth of, of, of bookings. We want a hundred grand up front. We want a hundred grand halfway through and we want the balance at the end. And they'd turn around and go, well, if you want the business, we're not going to do that. And that's, they want to keep the cash flow themselves. They've got the same bills to pay and blah, blah, blah. Well, their cash flow is based on them doing the tour. Ticket sales. So they get paid when they've done the gig and they get paid by the promoter. So it was a catch-22. It's like, if you want the business, you've got to give us credit. So it was a difficult time. And it was, it was a real lesson that I learned because I had, I, had a, I had a finance director who was absolutely useless, didn't actually deal with the problem I mean, again you know the buck stops with me as the cfo you know it doesn't stop with anyone else so i actually threw myself back in and was working 20 20 hours a day seven days a week just to get back on top of it it took us a, a good year to break the back of it and to save the business and i learned such an incredible lesson through that that i'm never ever going to allow myself to get into this position again so that's when i then did put in new systems about um, build back fees. Like if you want to build back, you're going to have to pay a fee. I want a proper payment plan. I wanted to get everything paid on a credit card because the client goes there. The tour manager is in control of the group. He's yeah. there with the band at the hotel. They should pay for it when they leave. They know what they've had. They know what they haven't had. Any query. Yeah, correct. With and if there's anything additional, you can go chase that on their behalf, right? Yeah, exactly. So we were one of the first... Um, well, we were the first um, agency that introduced what was known as an administration bill, bill back fee. And it didn't go down well. And a lot of clients were saying, well, you can't do this. And I said, look, I'm not charging you anymore. You've still got the option. You pay direct. It makes You know, if you pay direct, it saves me all this hassle yeah. of having to deal with it. And I'll tell you something. We had a couple of complaints I stood firm and said, I'm not doing it. If you don't, uh, we will lose your business. If you can't go and get a credit card for yourself, why should I give you credit? And I said, you know, my, my favorite line was, we're not a bank, we're a travel agency. And I think we lost two tours. Everyone went over to credit card and it revolutionized the whole, the, the whole touring business. Everyone now paid, on, paid direct on credit card. So that was one of the big pivotal moments of, of my life in terms of travel. So when you're, I mean, you like music. I've, I've got to know you. You enjoy it. You enjoy entertainment when you're out. You, you love all that. So when you got all these artists, you get to know them, right? Did you ever find yourself being a bit awestruck to some degree and kind of letting things go? Or did you end up just compartmentalising that they're famous, but this is business? How do you, how do you marry the two? Yeah, look, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a job. It's professionalism. You've got to apply the common sense um, rule. You know, you're not going to run up to these people and say, oh, hi, I'm your travel agent. You and me. You know, at the end of the day, we're a supplier to them. They've got a job to do. They get on with doing their job. We get on with doing our job. Yeah, we met various people. We got close to some bands um, through the tour managers. You know, Simple Minds was a band that we had a really, really close uh, affiliation with. And we'd go on tour with them and go to their really? and hang out with them and simply red was another one and yeah well, there was a number of bands that we did and you know we, we were always very polite and we were we never outstayed our welcome and we always try to remain you know professional um which i guess you're looking at me now thinking how did he do that it's not in that's not the guy i know yeah no i just i just imagine you propped up at the bar with mick Huckman <laughs> or jim kerr just off your tree on yeah. sambucas and espresso martinis yeah, but I always waited for them to get off their faces first. So that was okay. Never. You'll never remember Perfect, me. Well, professional, right? Exactly. So, so this was, a, you got over that blip. You carried on growing the business. I think I remember you saying to me, at your peak, you were over 200 staff. Is that correct? And you were doing 200 million plus? Yeah, that was, that was at the end. Um, that was right at the end. I think after that whole escapade with the credit and, over trading uh, and really sort of nearly losing the business. That's when we formed the appointment group, 
So we departmentalized all the different businesses because we had a, a touring business, we had a corporate business, we had a leisure business, we had an events business. So we yeah. then, I then restructured the whole the whole business into what, what became known as the appointment group. So um, that was a real fundamental thing as well. And I think that's when, <clears throat> for me, I got control back of the business because then I could have separate management teams running each separate division and I could de departmentalize each business. So it wasn't just one big massive business. It was four separate businesses that we managed independently. And that was quite a fundamental um, moment in, in, the, in the business of, of the appointment group. And we sort of put in all of these controls and I brought in a management team. We invented a yeah. in invested a lot of money in um, technology. We got all new computers. I invested a lot of money in accounts packages. We really set it all up. So we got to around about 2000 and we put together some really, really ambitious growth plans uh, over the next what you, Where were you? Look, let's take a quick break. I'll come back and we'll find out where you were in 2000. I'd like to know how it worked with your relationship with your partner, how you divvied up the roles. And then one of the biggest things I think people fail in is delegation. Give us two secs, we'll come back. Um, you've been listening to Ball by the Horns. I'm Giles Jones. Our guest today is Maurice Veronique. Um, we're sponsored by Shy Aviation. Um, we'll be back in a minute. Tag started life as travel by appointment back in 1988. Founded by Maurice Veronique and his good friend, John Gian Quito. Their dream was to form the largest independent travel specialist in the world, setting an example of how touring and travel should be done. The belief that travel is one of the most emotive experiences you can undertake and desire to make this experience the absolute best it can be for the traveller. Well, that makes sense. It's become the guiding principle for TAG. They believe that through a bespoke, high-touch personal service, they can alleviate the stress and complexity of travel, meaning whether it is a business meeting to close a deal, an event to meet industry peers, or a gig for 50,000 screaming fans. Wow, you will get to where you need to be, feeling ready to take on the world. Sounds great. Find out more at tag-group.com or for American friends, that's tag-group.com. Shy Aviation and Lifestyle is the global leader in private aviation. Offering an unparalleled round-the-clock service, Shy Aviation focuses on every detail of your flight and are dedicated in making private jet travel as effortless as possible. With no hidden fees or membership costs, our pricing is straightforward and transparent. You only pay for what you use and when you use it. With global airport access, your travel destinations are endless. Plus, with our front door-to-jet-door -door service, you'll experience true contactless travel, meaning you'll be at your safest with us. We'll even include a complimentary luxury lifestyle concierge for all clients. We're here to help you unlock the world safely, discreetly and privately, and to always give you the ultimate luxury experience. Request a quote and start your journey with us today at shyaviation.com. To Bull by the Horns with Giles Vickers Jones. Welcome back to Bull by the Horns. I'm Giles Vickers Jones. Our guest today is a magnificent Maurice Veronique. Um, Maurice, welcome back, my friend. Before the break, uh, we were talking about 2000. You talked about the appointment group, you compartmentalized different divisions. Now, I imagine there's a couple of reasons why you got the strategy of it. You maybe have some tax benefits. I'm not saying you did or you didn't. Um, delegating different roles, you're so big. But one thing I, we did touch on on your growth is your partner, John. Um, and a lot of co-founders, I understand why you need a co-founder because it's you're bouncing ideas. How did you two divide the workload? I mean, in the beginning, you said your numbers and he was from, from, from travel. But as it progressed, I imagine you knew travel. He knew numbers. So how did it end up panning out the relationship? 
Yeah, it's a very, very good question because, again, in the first, well, when we started the business, I was the finance director and he was the managing director. And we didn't know where and how this business was going to grow. Um, we didn't know in what direction. We didn't know whether it was going to be more corporate focused, whether it was going to be more touring focused. Um, and John, his, his strength was and is and will always be in the touring business. He's, he's, he's got to be one of the best touring um, people in, in the industry in terms of his contacts, in terms of his relationships with suppliers across, you know, airlines, hotels, private jets, cars. And he really understands how that business works, but probably better than anyone else in the industry. And I think, you know, his, his reputation speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. um, when we redid the business and we restructured and we relaunched, I felt that my role as FD, um, I, need, I need more, I need more. I needed to take more responsibility on the growth and running of the business. So we then became joint chairman and CEOs of the appointment group. And John's focus was very much on touring and developing the touring business. And mine was still on the finance, on the accounting, on the administration, on sales and marketing and other things. And then we had the, the sort of divisional MDs running their own department. So corporate was run by a team, events was run by a team, leisure was run by a team. And John was doing touring with, with his team. So the dynamics of our relationship changed somewhat from me being, if you like, the back office person and him being the front of house person. Um, it, it sort of became a lot more of parity in, in the market where we were both taking higher roles. And I felt that that was really important for the future growth and success and expansion of the business. Um, so we'd invested in all this money, we'd put all these new systems in place, we'd put all this management in place, invested hundreds of thousands of pounds, literally, in technology. Mm. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. Right. And the whole world was then put on hold. And it was horrible. I mean, you know, we'd been through the Gulf War, we'd been through SARS, we'd been through the ash cloud and all these things we'd sort of managed to get through by hook or by crook without affecting the business too much. Um, but 9-11 was a real kick in the balls. When you say kick in the ball, what, people just, well, people just stopped traveling full stop, right? Because they were scared. All, all touring stopped. I mean, bands, American bands wouldn't come over. Um, no one would travel. It, it really was a, a horrible time. And it was I mean, that could be comparable to what's been happening the last year with COVID, right? 100%. And again... It was a similar sort of like devastation, was it? It really was. And you look back, and that was 20 years ago, you know, we're talking Crikey about me. September 2001. It was 20 years ago. And it was weird because we, part of our strategy that we we'd rolled out in 2000 was that we wanted to expand internationally. So we were looking to acquire a business in New York during yeah. 2001. Yeah, I mean, we were literally ready to push the button. And again, you know, I think I'll, I'll say it, and I'll, I say it quite a lot in life at the moment. I do believe that things are written in the stars, you know. Your destiny okay. is predetermined to a certain extent, and someone up there, you know, is looking out for you and we didn't I and mean, it got delayed we were supposed to do it in the summer of uh, 2001 and it tipped over and basically 9-11 happened and thank god we didn't do the deal in new york because we would have literally lost even a, a lot more money but i think one of the things you just touched on there so you you've got this, this investment right so with any business you've got let's say you're 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 you're, you're got 100 grand coming through a month of which let's say 10 percent is profit so you've got 10,000 pounds to play with, or let's call it a million quid a month, a hundred grand to play with. That hundred grand has to both service staff, pay down any debts, cash flow any growth, and pay out dividends to the owners. And just because, let's say, like in COVID or this happened, what people don't realize is those loans are still due, the wages still have to get paid, you are leveraged as a director because you've got a certain lifestyle. And overnight, you go, right, your cash flow burn, regardless if you make people redundant, will still be 50 grand. 
that doesn't change. So I think one of the big things for me when I speak to entrepreneurs, and you touched on it very earlier in the conversation, was things come up and it's learning how you can solve those problems, right? So, so you got 9-11, you got some big problems. What did you do? Well, I had to scale the business back. I mean, it was the only thing we could Well, do. that was I mean, redundancy, shutting yeah. down offices. Yeah, we had to, I mean, literally the business dried up overnight. It was like someone switched a tap off. It was incredible. From, from being like going a thousand miles an hour to zero, literally. What was overnight. your revenue in 2000 to 2001? Do you remember? Um, it was probably around about 40, 45 million. I and mean, suddenly you're like going to be what, three? Well, the problem is, and again, you know, I mean, like the pandemic, and you got to put yourself back in that situation. When something like this happens, it's very difficult to second guess how long it's going to go on for. I mean, if you remember a year ago, everyone was saying, oh, this pay, it'll be over by sort of like, you know, the fall, you know, September, October. Well, here we are 13, 14 months later, and it's still not gone away. And it was the same thing with the Gulf War. How much of an impact uh, with the 9-11 how much of an impact is that going to have on people's travel habits and how long is that going to make people frightened to get on a plane so we basically acted i i took control i took the ball by the horns if you like and i really uh, got stuck in and i and i basically scaled everything back i mean over the next two three years it was it was difficult i mean it was it was a slow return it took a couple of years but what it did do, it really stood us in good stead because I knew that, as you just alluded to, cash is king. And it's cash is king in any crisis situation. We, believe it or not, and it's something that I'm incredibly proud of, mm. is that we built the appointment group over 30 years and we had no loans apart from that. £40,000 overdraft we had, which we never fully used, even with that bad debt in the early days. I never borrowed money. We never had overdrafts. I never had loans. We did it all self-sufficiently through cash flow, which was a pretty major achievement. It's unheard of today. I mean, it's unheard of. Yeah, people I mean, look the at minute, I mean, the way it works now is you go, right, I've got an idea. You've got some experience. You got a business plan. Your burn rate is say two hundred fifty grand year one. You need two fifty, and you're going to put a valuation of one million and sell twenty five percent. Then you start. Yeah. No one does it the way you probably should do it, which is hold the equity, roll up your sleeves, work it out. Absolutely. That is remarkable. You because we remember this conversation we had right about I think it was last summer we were go, we went for a couple of bike rides and we were for a bike ride round around Best. central London. Yeah. And uh, I was talking to you about our bank manager. I think my bank manager just phoned me. Mm -hmm. And you went, and bearing in mind, those at home don't know, um, Maurice sold his company for a lot of money and his business was huge, like multiple offices around the world. He went, I don't even know who my bank manager is. <laughs> I don't, I've never spoken to him. And I was like, oh my God, I just literally had mine on the phone on my mobile. And uh, I think that's a testament to your success. Um, and, I, and I like that. I, I think we still own our company and we've had to do out of cash flow. We haven't been quite as clever as you. We did overtrade. We have had some issues. But let's talk about the success. You've come through that. In 2018, you've come to the decision that you and John as partners are going to sell the appointment group. Why did that happen? How did it happen? Uh, and why? Well, I think that um, the, the main reason was, if I'm being perfectly honest, I think it got to a stage where probably going back to, we'd, we'd come through all of, all, all of this, um, you know, 9-11, and we'd restructured the business. And then we went through the global recession of sort of like 2008 through to 2011 and to be honest because of the stuff that we did in in 2001 2002 2003 we sailed through the recession i mean we and i never forget my accountants actually said to me you're recession proof which was a, a really unusual thing for an auditor really? to say yeah 
Um, and we were, we were in really, really good shape. And we came through the recession 2011. And then I said, right, we need to expand. So then we wanted to get into LA. So we opened the LA office in 2010. Um, we opened, uh, we did a couple of acquisitions. We acquired an events business. And then we acquired one of our big touring competitors in, mm -hmm. one was in 2012, one was in 2013. We opened an office in Australia in 2014. We opened an office in Singapore in 2015. So we put together a strategy to really build the business to a point where we wanted to sell it. And I think that was a, like a five-year plan. We'd started right. that probably around about 2012. That's when I came out to LA. Um, we had an office in New York and we had an office, we just opened the office in LA. And we saw America as the area where there was the huge growth opportunity because of its size. And we were using, and, and a lot of the, the bands that we were looking after when they came to the UK, a lot of the American bands, would say to us, oh my God, the service has been incredible. You guys are awesome. You know, which I hate that word. They yeah. say, if only we had someone like you in America that did the same thing. And we thought, no well, we can do that. So we literally opened up New York, LA. And again, going back to when we started, it, the, the floodgates opened. And before we knew it, it was literally like happy days, you know business coming through we had all the systems in place we had the controls i had the staff sending a lot of staff from the uk out to america because they had the understanding and the ethos and the culture of what the yeah. appointment group was all about it was all about service orientation and we grew very very quickly which allowed us to sort of make the investments in australia in singapore in more better technology increasing your footprint increasing your revenue and in, right. I suppose your reputation, right? Yeah, I mean, our, our reputation went very global very quickly. And again, that was largely due to the fact of the, the bands that we were looking after, but also a lot of the big high, high profile corporate clients that we looked after as well. Um, they had London, London offices and New York offices and LA offices. So we were then able to globalize it and link them all together. Um, and it was really, you know, an amazing sort of three or four years from probably 2012 to 2015, where we opened offices, we did acquisitions, the business grew exponentially. We I mean, that must have been so exciting, right? It was, it was, it was fantastic. But then three years later, the 2015 to 2018, Maurice, you're, you're selling to private equity. Yeah. So I think what we decided consciously that we wanted to... You know, it was getting to the point I, I felt, and I think John shared that opinion, that it was just getting too big for us. Right. And, you know, I think when you're an entrepreneur, you, you, you set out to start a business. And then when it becomes a big global corporation with, you know, multiple offices, multiple uh, levels of um, management, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to control. And it's exhausting as well. And I was approaching 60 and I just felt that it was something that if it was going to continue to grow and continue to be successful, it needed to have some external investment. So we consciously made the decision to go to market. We felt private equity uh, was the right um, suitors to go for. We did our beauty parade. We put together our information memorandum um, and we basically went out and spoke to all the interested parties within the private equity uh, sector. And, you know, thankfully, um, one came along and we engaged with them and we went into exclusivity and there was a bit of negotiating going backwards and forwards. And this was sort of end of 2017, beginning of 2018. And literally three years ago this week, uh, I sold the business um, to a private equity company. It was the 30th of April, um, 19, uh, 2018. And um, it, was, it was a happy day. But my issue was that... So it was genuinely a happy day. To this day, you don't regret it? No, oh, not no. at all. I mean, no, 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 no. So would my, you say my, going back, is that, the, is that the best moment in your career, the 30th of April, 2018? 100 percent yeah yeah 
it was it, it was a very exciting time it was stressful i've got to be honest it, it dragged on and on and on and it's a very very difficult thing to do to go through a sale of a business um particularly with private equity they literally the due diligence they go through is second to none and we were in exclusivity with them for six months six months so for the initial look we've got to do it six months well, to get the from to get the check. From, from agreeing the deal, which was the 31st of October, 2017, to closing the deal, which was the 30th of April, 2018, was six months. And I gotta say, it was exhausting and it was very emotional. And the, the, bad, the, the, the thing that really upsets me more about it was that instead of having that emotion of elation, I had that emotion of relief. And that yeah. was quite sad, really, that after 30 years, I, I, it, it was an overwhelming feeling of relief that we'd finally done the deal. And I should have been like jumping around the room, bouncing off the ceiling, being ecstatic and happy. Yeah. And it drained, it drained, it drained. I mean, I, but I guess if you're buying a business, you want to dot the I's, cross the T's. You need to make sure there's no toxic debts. You need to make sure the book's... And the balance sheet are correct. And the problem I guess you've got is you've been questioning all the time and it just becomes, this is not what you signed up for, but you're still in the gig, right? Um, what, what, what kind of things would you advise to anyone who's going to sell their business? What would you advise to them having been through this and had you know, that feeling of relief at the end because it was so frustrating? What can you advise people to do differently to perhaps the way you did it? Again, it just comes back to what I said right at the beginning, preparation. You've got to prep your business for sale. You've got to spend, you know, you can't wake up today and say, I'm going to sell my business tomorrow. You've got to wake up today and say, I'm going to sell my business in three years. What do I need to do in those three years to get it ready for sale? What do I need to deal with? You know, where are the issues? Where are the skeletons in the cupboard? Where are the problems? What personnel are not going to work out in a new business? You know, there's a thousand and one things you have to do to prep before you go to market. It's because a full-time it's, job right there. Absolutely. And it took three years to get to that point. And, you know, we went, we went through it in, in 2017, a sale. And we, we went into exclusivity in that year. But there were so many issues that came out that it was never gonna sell. And from that, I said, right, it's fallen over. We've got one year to address all of these issues, get them out the way so that when we do go back to market, we're ready for it. And that's what we did. And it meant changing some pretty key personnel who yeah. weren't ready for the exercise of going through due diligence. Um, people that weren't gonna be in the business after sale, we had to deal with them before the sale. What do you mean by that? Um, well, people that weren't... Look, I mean, when you, when you run a business as an entrepreneur, you have people that work with you for many, many years and you create a family. And they're yeah. not necessarily work colleagues, but they're friends. They're family. And, you know, we all want to help our family. But maybe there's someone better that can do the job. So some very difficult conversations has to take place with these people to say, look, thank you for being part of this, but going forward, your face doesn't fit or there's someone else that we want to bring in to do this job. Oh, that's hard. It, it is, it's difficult, it's, but it's part of business. You know, you've got, to, you've got to do those things and you've got to be tough. And, you know, in many respects, I probably wasn't tough enough because that's not me. You know, I'm not some corporate bloody guru who's like you know senseless brainless person who just makes decisions willy-nilly i've got a lot of empathy and a lot of respect and, and and support for these people because they've helped me get to where i am yeah so as long as it's done professionally and as long as it's done with the best intentions and that you know you reward these people for the efforts they've made then that's how it has to be and that's the tough part of business once again, going back to the decisions you need to make as the owner are pretty tough. Okay, look, we won't keep it too much longer, Mary. So I've just got a couple of more questions I wanted to ask. Um, how did you say you got 30th of April? Let me remind myself. Yep, there's only 30 days in the month. 
May the 1st. What did you do? How was the next? Because we met that summer, so you were having fun. But what did you go do? Remind us. Well, tell everyone. And also, if you don't mind, what do you sell it for? Well, I think um, I think back then it was it, we were doing around about four million EBITDA, and I think we got a multiple of about ten, so it was around about forty million. Fantastic! So it was a nice, uh, nice chunk between myself yeah. and John. Um, I my my big issue was that um, selling to private equity, which was the best decision to do for the business, but was the worst decision for me. I didn't want to work for private equity. Um, no. having, having run my business and had a, having been an entrepreneur and having sort of built the business up over 30 years, I just didn't really want to work for a private equity. I, I couldn't see a role for me. So um, part of the process was they, they were going to bring in a new CEO, which I was very happy with because that's what I felt it needed. So yeah. I managed to uh, negotiate my exit out of the business by the 31st of August 2018, which, again, quite... Uh, ironically, was 30 years to the day that I'd set the business up. Literally, I set it up the 1st of September 1988, and I left officially 31st of August 2018, 30 years to the day. That's and you know amazing. what? There's, some, there's something in that. You know, it's like, it's like done, tick the box, mm. move on. So I've still retained some um, shares in the business. They retain me as a consultant, which I'm still yeah. consulting, and I've still got um, loan notes in the business. So okay. um, I'm still um, not actively involved, but I still speak to the CEO and a couple of the old staff sort of on a regular basis just to find out what's going on. And particularly over the last 12 months with the whole pandemic, how the business yeah. decimated. I mean, how is that? I mean, gosh, I don't want to dwell on it too long because we know everyone's suffering, but you in particular, what have you guys had to do? Have you gone back to what happened after 9-11? Shrinking, scaling back, reset to go out and grow again. Is that the plan? Yeah, I, I, when, when, I, when we sold the business uh, at the end of 2018, I think we'd just done 200 million pounds worth of Crikey revenue. Me. I think we had about 300 staff. Um, we had nine offices and four continents. Um, you had a management team that was very uh, established and very well versed in terms of their roles and what they had to do. Um, so it was in good shape. And their view, they've done a couple of acquisitions uh, since they've had it. And the view was that they wanted to sort of get the business up to um, 350 million um, over a three year period and then exit. So really, they should be looking to exit this year, which is what the yeah. original plan was. But yeah. With the pandemic and um, the downturn, everything's had to be taken back to uh, a base level. Um, a lot of staff have gone. I think we're down to around about 100 staff now. So they've shed probably... Oh, that's so... Uh, but... The, revenue, the revenues you know, are, revenues, you know, very low, probably 5% of what the budgets were. But everyone's in the same boat in terms yeah. of the travel sector. And I think everyone knows that it will return. And I think everyone's hoping that it's going to return soon. And you know what? It's going to be a bit like when we started the bit. It's going to be like a startup again. And again, it's about how you manage growing the business whilst bringing the resource in to service the clients. You know, you don't want to overtrade and you can't undertrade. And that's the biggest challenge that any business is going to have coming out of this. How you balance the books. Very interesting dynamic. Are you, I, I know the answer, but are you tempted to get yourself back into it and have another stab at growing it again? Well, you know the answer to that. <laughs> um, okay, so listen, we're going to wrap it up shortly, but I just want to ask you, and this is probably one of my most favourite things. I think my wife just put the hoover on there, if you can hear that. Um, this is my favourite thing that you're involved in now. The Wombles. The um, Wombles of Wimbledon. So, those listening, Maurice, I mean, how long ago? Two years ago you invested in the Wombles? Was that correct? Uh, yeah, two and a half years, actually. It was, um, it was October 18. So, uh, yeah, a buddy of mine who... Um, had basically got the Wombles back under control, got all the IP rights back globally, asked me if I wanted to 
invest some money and help him bring the Wombles back to um, the world in general. And um, I thought, great idea. I love the idea of the Wombles, yeah. obviously the original eco-warriors. They're all about the environment and litter picking and plastics and everything else. So we've spent the last couple of years prepping them to return to the market. And um, yeah, it's exciting. But, you know, the last 12 months hasn't helped. Um, with the pandemic, but we're now getting back into gear and going to be starting to hopefully talk to some production companies about reproducing some new TV episodes and a series and maybe even a feature-length film and books and video games and apps. And... Well, I, for one, can't wait to see all that. I know it's going to be successful. Maurice, what's the rest of the day looking like? Because for you, at the moment, it's 10 o'clock in Los Angeles, give or take. What's going to happen? What's a day like for Mr. Veronique? Well, um, <laughs> I've actually used the last couple of months um, to really try and get my uh, fitness back up. So You look great. I'm hitting the gym pretty hard every day. I've got a personal trainer. Um, I'm doing that. I've got a, um, a lunch today with an old friend here in uh, LA, which is just down the road. It's her birthday, so I'm going to treat her to a nice lunch. And then I'm heading down to Venice tonight for a dinner with um, a production guy on, uh, who runs a production company here on the Wombles. So to have a conversation with him about whether he'd be interested in uh, working with us going forward. So that's my day today, but every day is different. And um, the weather's a little bit gloomy here today. You'd probably be pleased to hear. It's a little bit I am very stuff. pleased, I won't lie. And um, it's not particularly warm but um every day is different but you know what i'm loving life uh, i'm very thankful for being in the situation i'm in and mm -hmm. um whatever happens as i said before i think it's written in the stars love it quick tip for any entrepreneurs out there uh well you know what i mean there are loads of entrepreneurs out there and i think in these in these times that we're going through at the moment I mean, it's amazing being out here in LA for the last month or so. I mean, I've, I've met so many people who are coming up with such incredible ideas and inventions. It's like, it's literally like an explosion of, of talent that all these people and, it, and here, and I'm sure it's the same in England to a lesser extent, but here it's like, there's such a buzz, you know, these, these young entrepreneurs, 20s 30s people girls guys different ages different sexes different backgrounds everyone is literally trying to get on this entrepreneurial bandwagon to launch new inventions new ideas mainly technology driven a lot of them are music based a lot of them are tv and and, and um, entertainment based it's exciting. I mean, you can feel the buzz out here. It's really really exciting and I think there's going to be a huge rebirth in society both for fun pleasure but more importantly like business going to get back on its feet and i think you're absolutely right we're going to see a new wave of uh, exciting ideas and um i just hope part of that wave is going to be the wombles um Fingers so Mar maurice it's been brilliant chatting with you um thank you my friend you've been an absolute delight <laughs>